All right, we are back. We promised a few weeks back in this program we would try and reach out to Stephen J. Harper and Greg Pallast and Michael Trackman, and I guess at this point we're two out of three. We will, again, reach out to Mr. Trackman to see if we can bring him on next week's show, or, or worse, the, the show after that, to, uh, to talk about what's going on over with the Supreme Court of the United States, and some bad things are happening. I also want to note that while we raised the hope a few weeks back, we might reach out to Bart Gelman and have him come on the program. Uh, alas, Mr. Gelman is currently not doing media, according to his representatives. But perhaps in the future, that will change. We also have some cause to be optimistic that we can return uh, David and possibly Margaret Talbot to this program. We've had them both on. Their new book, By the Light of Burning Dreams, subtitled The Triumphs and Tragedies of the Second American Revolution, is reportedly a pretty darn good read. And uh, being familiar with the writers, I can certainly believe that. Between the two siblings, we've had four appearances by, the, by Talbots on this program, and we look forward to number five. Someone else I'm tempted to reach out to would be Ha Jun Chang. Yes, Mr. McMillan, the Ha Jun Chang. He's got a pretty funny book that I picked up uh, in the airport while contemplating a long plane ride. The book is titled 23 Things They Don't Tell You About Capitalism. I enjoyed it so much I've just bought four copies to distribute to friends. Since I brought up this book, I cannot resist doing one little quote from it. Keep in mind, this guy's an economist. Said Mr. Chang, over the last three decades, economists played an important role in creating the conditions of the 2008 crisis and dozens of smaller financial crises that came before it since the early 1980s, such as the 1982 Third World Debt Crisis and 1995 Mexican peso crisis, also the 1997 Asian crisis and the 1998 Russian crisis by providing theoretical justifications for financial deregulation and the unrestrained pursuit of short-term profits. More broadly, they advanced theories that justified the policies that have led to slower growth, higher inequality, heightened job insecurity, and more frequent financial crises that have dogged the world in the last three decades. On top of that, they push for policies that weaken the prospects for long-term development in developing countries. In the rich countries, these economists encouraged people to overestimate the power of new technology, made people's lives more and more unstable, made them ignore the loss of natural control over the economy, and rendered them complacent about deindustrialization. Moreover, they supplied arguments that insist all these economic outcomes that many people find objectionable in the world, such as rising inequality, or extreme poverty, are really inevitable, given human nature, and need to reward people according to their productive contributions. In other words, economics has been worse than irrelevant. Economics, as it has been practiced in the last three decades, has been positively harmful for most people. Well, I think one thing's pretty certain. He's not going to win the Nobel Prize for economics anytime soon. Anyway, you know what we need, Mr. Villain? We need to do the good, the bad, and the ugly. Anyway, I do want to apologize, dear listener, for this very hoarse voice. Our feeling here is that uh, a show with a hoarse voice is better than no show at all. Anyway, after three uh, segments in the last two shows that were pretty serious, we need to lighten things just a tad. 
In this, we seek the help of The Week magazine. Notes the last week's issue of the magazine. It was a good week that week for irony, with reports that dozens of Venezuelan asylum seekers in New York City were being offered cash and quietly bused to Florida to help in the hurricane cleanup. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis recently had Venezuelan asylum seekers flown north to highlight blue states' alleged hypocrisy on immigration. We should have more to say about that as we go along. Here's one I really like. It was judged a bad week that week for futurism after Hurricane Ian destroyed what was left of the Cape Romano Dome House in Marco Island, Florida. That distinctive group of concrete interlocking geodesic domes was erected in 1982 to serve as a model for the hurricane-proof beach houses of the future. Wouldn't you know it, the beach underneath it eroded away. And it was an ugly week that week for the world of competitive bass fishing. Yes, that world was rocked with scandal when weights were found inside the, quote, winning, unquote, fish at a tournament in Ohio. Apparently an angry crowd confronted Jake Runyon and Chase Kaminsky after their prize-winning five walleye bass were cut open to reveal 7.6 pounds of weights. Police had to escort the two men away, said the tournament director. We're we're just trying to keep them safe. And you know, the, the truth of the matter is, hell hath no fury like that of deceived bass fishermen. And according to the week, it was a good week this past week for oyster tours. Yes, according to John Marcus, writing in the Boston Globe, the Oyster Tour is becoming the new wine tour. From Central California to Maine, the Gulf Coast, the Pacific Northwest, oyster farms have recently been drawing crowds of curious foodies. They quoted a Gary Fleener who heads tours at Hog Island Oysters, north of San Francisco, saying it's pretty cool to eat something that's just been pulled out of the ocean and sit next to the seashore while you're eating it. And I do have to wonder how it is the Boston Globe got the idea that Central California was going to be a part of uh, oyster touring. I guess if you include Tomales Bay as part of Central California, it would make the cut. But for my money, I would say steer clear of any oyster tours being served up in Fresno. In fact, as a general rule, steering clear of Fresno is probably a good policy. And that opinion, of course, is mine alone as no reflection on this station or anyone else. And the truth of the matter is I, I, I do have a soft spot in my heart for some parts of Fresno. And, of course, I have many Fresnans as friends. And, no, I don't know if it's a real word. But if President Warren G. Harding can mispronounce the word normality and instead say normalcy and it enters the language, well, maybe we'll set a precedent. And it was a bad week last week for academic achievement we think, with the following story. New York University has fired a revered chemistry professor after students complained his course was too hard. Yes, evidently Maitland Jones Jr. wrote the seminal 1,300-page textbook, Organic Chemistry, but 82 students signed a petition complaining that their low grades did not necessarily reflect the time and effort put into this class. I have to say that I've never associated getting a good raid with how much time you spent warming the seat you were sitting in. But apparently at NYU, students are stunned that they put time and effort and didn't necessarily get a good grade. Evidently, how much organic chemistry they learned didn't enter into the equation, at least as far as we can see. And finally, it was an ugly week for health with this story. According to the Washington Post, both men and women in America weigh on average about 30 pounds more than they did in the 1960s. Think about that. 
on average, 30 extra pounds. Mr. Will points out that we, we have grown a little bit in height since then, <laughs> but I think for this to even out, we probably had to have gained about four inches in height. Turns out about 40% of the American population is now considered obese. And projections have it at 50% by the year 2030, which is, frankly, just eight years away. If I tell you that I'm hungry, then won't you feed my face because I'm fat, fat, I'm fat. Show me really, really fat. You know I'm fat, fat, I'm fat. You know really, really fat. You know. I think I should do a little bit of follow-up on the subject of Mussolini, which is, I think, a segue we've never used on this show before. But uh, I watched again that Dictator's Playbook segment done on Mussolini because it's just chilling, some of the parallels between Italy of 100 years ago and America now. I did badmouth the the series on last week's program when I was talking to Gordon Smith because I thought that the piece done on Saddam Hussein looked like just utter propaganda. The one on Mussolini is much better, but I detected one little thread in it that was just not quite right. The documentary implies that, that rich industrialists and right-wingers were attracted to Mussolini after he gained a great deal of political power, thinking that, you know, this is a man we can use. That's how it was portrayed in the documentary. In reality, Mussolini had been backed by such people all along. They, they helped him achieve the political success that he gained um, long before they were able to take advantage of it once he seized power. It's not a small difference. Anyway, to learn more about uh, Mussolini and other strong men, I have purchased Ruth Ben Jot's book, Strong Men, Mussolini to the Present. I think I'll quote just a bit from her introduction to Strong Men. Said Ruth Ben Jot, From Mussolini through Putin, all the strong men featured in this book establish forms of personal rule, which concentrates enormous power in one individual whose own political and financial interests prevail over national ones in shaping domestic and foreign policy. Loyalty to him and his allies, rather than expertise, is the primary qualification for serving in the state bureaucracy, and his participation in his corruption schemes. Personalist rulers can be long-lasting rulers because they control patronage networks that bind people to them in relationships of complicity and fear. Making all political activity bolster his own authority allowed Franco to stay in power in Spain for 36 years. Now, in describing the rise to power of Hitler and Mussolini, this author makes mention of the fact that uh, Hitler also got a big start in his early political career by getting financial help from some powerful individuals. Here's a quote from page 30 that kind of got my attention. In 1927, Hitler hired Heinrich Hoffmann, who later became his official photographer. His 1929 portrait, which highlights the intensity and masculine capability of Hitler, became an iconic image after 1933. Said Ruth Benjiat, the businessman Ernst von Hofstangel introduced this cleaned-up Hitler to the moneyed social circles that mattered, just as Sarfati had done for Benito Mussolini. The name Ernst Hofstangel kind of caught me upside the head, because I can remember back, I'm going to say, I'm going to say 40 years ago perhaps longer, I was watching a documentary about Hitler that featured prominently in it interviews with Ernst Putzi Hanstangel. While he's admittedly a footnote figure in world history, he's such an oddball figure that I couldn't help but um, looking up a few facts about him, which I, I think I'm going to share because after all, this is Radio Parallax. We can do whatever we want. 
Now, as I'm racking my brain trying to remember, I think that I saw this special sometime in the late 70s. I know that it was about that time someone took William Shirer's The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich and made an excellent documentary about it. I'd like to see if I could track that down again these many decades later. Shirer's book is, 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 is a massive effort that followed closely what happened as the Third Reich did indeed rise and then fall. As a young man, I pondered, as I'm sure many of you also did, dear listener, how it was that Europe's most educated nation, that of the German people, became entranced and hypnotized and victimized by Hitler and the Nazis. This is a question which, unfortunately, has uh, risen its ugly head again in the last 15 or 20 years. Seeing people marauding around the nation's capital, breaking windows, carrying Confederate flags, carrying Nazi flags, doing Nazi salutes, um, is worrisome. But let's talk about Putzi, shall we? Ernst Hanstangl evidently got that nickname when he was a young man. I gather it means something the equivalent of little boy. He was actually a very large man, born to a wealthy German family and sent off to get educated at Harvard. While there, apparently in 1906, a canoeist on the Charles, Charles River lost control and tipped over. Several Harvard students trying out for crew ran to the river and one jumped in and fished the man out and became an instant local hero. And yes, that was Putzi. He later claimed that as a result of this incident, he got to know Theodore Roosevelt Jr., who was a fellow Harvard student and the elder son of the president. That in turn led to an invitation to the White House where at a stag party in the basement, Hans Stangl played the piano so enthusiastically he broke several bass strings on the Steinway. Somewhere along the way before returning to Germany, Hans Stangl also met the elder Roosevelt, Franklin. Hans Stangl had a German father and an American mother. It should be noted that while at Harvard, he rubbed shoulders with the likes of T.S. Eliot, Robert Benchley, John Reed, and Walter Lippmann. He was a gifted pianist and was equally at ease playing Wagner and Harvard marching songs. Hans Stangl himself married an American woman and in 1921 moved back to Germany. Where in 1922 he met an up-and-coming young politician named Adolf Hitler. And when you know it, he did so through a Harvard connection. Apparently Warren Robbins, a Harvard classmate of his who was serving at the U.S. Embassy in Berlin, called Hans Stangl in Munich to ask him to assist Truman Smith, he was a young military attaché about to visit the Bavarian capital. Robbins wanted Putzi to help Smith cultivate contacts there. But before the men could get together, the highly resourceful attaché contacted a broad range of political and military figures. One of Smith's most interesting meetings was with Hitler, whom Smith described as a marvelous demagogue. I've rarely listened to such a logical and fanatical man. Smith wrangled a pass to a Nazi party rally at a popular Munich beer hall. When Hanstangl and Smith did connect on the latter's final day in Munich, the Berlin-bound diplomat gave Hanstangl his pass to see that evening's event and urged him to go. Putzi had never heard of Hitler, but he decided to see what Smith found so compelling about the political newcomer. I'm quoting, by the way, from an article titled Hitler's Harvard Man by Andrew Nagorski, which appeared in HistoryNet. When Putzi arrived at the beer hall, he wasn't sure what to expect. His first glimpse of Hitler left him distinctly underwhelmed. Quote, In his heavy boots, dark suit, and leather waistcoat, semi-stiff white collar, and odd little mustache, he really did not look very impressive. 
like a waiter in a railway station restaurant, Hamstago recalled. But once Hitler took the floor, the atmosphere became electric. Hitler displayed a mastery of innuendo and irony, starting in a light conversational tone and then cranking up the rhetoric as he blamed Jews, communists, socialists, and the Weimar Republicans for Germany's predicament. He promised a national rebirth that would sweep away those elements. Putzi observed how Hitler entranced his audience, especially the ladies, he said, including one young woman who was transfixed as if in, in some emotional ecstasy. Impressed beyond measure, in his own words, Putzi made his way to the speaker who was drenched in sweat but relishing his triumph. After introducing himself, Hans Stangl declared, I agree with 95% of what you said and would very much like to talk to you about the rest sometime. Hitler couldn't have been friendlier. Why, yes, of course, he replied. And I'm sure we shall not have to quarrel about the odd 5%. From that moment on, Hans Stangl effectively joined Hitler's movement seeing his new acquaintance as a self-made man who could rally Germans to a cause that would prove a strong alternative to the communists who were also pushing for power. Putzi would later claim that his 5% disagreement had to do with Hitler's Jew-baiting. But there are no records indicating that anti-Semitism seriously troubled Hans Schnagel. Quite the contrary. Hitler's claims that Jews were profiting shamelessly from Germany's misery was a charge which was, quote, a charge which was only too easy to make stick. Unquote, according to Putzi. But he saw Hitler as an unconventional but gifted politician on the rise, and he was eager to rise with him. After selling his share in the family's gallery back in New York, Putzi put up $1,000 to turn the Nazis' four page weekly Volkscher Biobachter into a daily. He hired a cartoonist to, resign, to redesign the masthead and claim credit for coining the propaganda sheet's original slogan Arbeit und Brot, Work and Bread. Hans Stangl also claimed he tried to educate Hitler about the world, particularly the growing importance of the United States. If there's another war, it must inevitably be won by the side which America joins, he told the Nazi leader. The irony here is that uh, as he joined the Nazi hierarchy, Hans Stangl became their expert on the Roosevelts. After all, he was friendly with both Teddy and Franklin. I'm sorry to say that this piece in History.net does not outline how it is that Hans Schnuggle helped Hitler and the Nazis financially, but I'm certainly willing to believe that he played a major role. Apparently, Putzi introduced Hitler to his wife, and the two of them got along famously. Putzi believed Hitler had, quote, no normal sex life, unquote, but came to think that the Nazi leader had developed one of his theoretical passions for his wife, Helen. Helen didn't disagree, but saw Hitler as an admirer who was probably also, quote, a neuter, unquote. Curiously, according to this piece, on the evening of November 9, 1923, which was the night of the notorious beer hall putscht in Bavaria, Hitler suddenly appeared at the Hanstangl's country house about an hour southwest of Munich. He and his coterie, including Putzi, had just tried and failed to seize control of Bavaria. In a violent street confrontation that left 14 Nazis and four policemen dead, the authorities had quashed the rebellion. When this so-called beer hall putsch failed, Putzi fled to Austria, but Hitler's car broke down so he decided to seek refuge with Helen. And here's the really curious part. The next morning, Helen's mother-in-law, who lived nearby, phoned to say the police were in her house. Helen went upstairs to alert Hitler that he was about to be arrested. The news devastated him. Now is all lost. No use going on, he exclaimed as he picked up a revolver laying on the cabinet. Helen said, but I was alert, grasped his arm, and took the weapon away from him. Alarmed that her guest might have killed himself, she shouted, what do you think you're doing? She berated Hitler for thinking of leaving his followers in the lurch. 
They're looking for you to carry on, she said. Hitler sank into his chair, and Helen quickly hid the gun in the kitchen flower bin. The police did arrest Adolf, leading to that trial that made him truly famous. There's another anecdote I like from the piece. H.V. Kaltenborn, who back in 1932 was a famous radio voice, interviewed Hitler through his Harvard connections, came away from the interview that his former classmates had set up, convinced that the Nazi leader was an unlikely threat. said, quote, After meeting Hitler, I myself felt almost reassured. I could not see how a man of his type, a plebeian Austrian of limited mentality, could ever gain the allegiance of a majority of Germans, end quote. But of course, we know that he did. Hans Stangl evidently got outmaneuvered by some others in the Nazi hierarchy and fled Germany circa 1937, where, wouldn't you know it, he became American intelligence's expert on Hitler. And of course, he was still alive in the 1970s, leading to that TV interview where he told a lot of curious stories about the rise of the Nazis. Anyway, you have to wonder uh, about this series of stories, and particularly for me, the fact that Hans Stangl's wife made damn sure Hitler just didn't take a gun and shoot himself back in 1923. Her kindness toward one individual did not turn out well for the rest of humanity. But coming forward from some weirdness back in Europe in the 1930s to weirdness in America in the 2020s, people are actually questioning whether the American experiment with democracy might come to an end soon. Writing in the Washington Post, Eugene Robinson said, The truth is plain and painful. If Republicans take both houses of Congress next month, it may mean the end of democracy as we know it. That may sound like partisan hyperbole, but a post-analysis last week found that 569 Republican candidates for congressional or state or key statewide offices, of those, 229, more than half, are on record supporting Donald Trump's big lie that the Democrats used massive voter fraud to steal the election. We talked about this on last week's program with Stephen Harper. And we're going to keep talking about it because we're scared to note, as did the Washington Post, the GOP is also running election deniers for key Secretary of State posts in Arizona, Nevada, Michigan, and other major battleground states. And at least two gubernatorial candidates, Doug Mastriano of Pennsylvania and Kerry Lake of Arizona, have pledged that the Republican nominee will, quote, win, unquote, their state in 2024, whomever voters may prefer. Writing in The New Republic, Michael Tomaski said, It's getting harder to see how democracy can survive Republicans' lurch into fascism. Our last best chance is to rebuke them next month by margins so decisive they can't plausibly challenge the results. And of course, as talked about previously on this program, we have this issue of the independent state legislature doctrine. Writing about this in The Guardian, Stephen Donziger said, that the independent state legislature doctrine is a crackpot theory that could lock in right-wing control of the United States for generations. If the court upholds that theory, it will give partisan majorities in state legislatures the sole, unreviewable power to change election districts and election laws, and even to disregard the popular vote in presidential elections in order to choose their preferred electors. Said the Guardian, that would put the U.S. squarely on the path to authoritarianism. <laughs> Gee, do you think? Anyway, we hope that Michael Trachtman will have a thing or two to say about what's up at the Supreme Court. And of course, even the Supreme Court is noticing that there's some, some of their recent decisions are, are causing the public to look askance at what they're up to. Chief Justice Roberts, 
in an editorial in Wall Street Journal, which, which is for our money is inevitably or almost inevitably an opinion we will disagree with, just by the fact it seems that it is an editorial in the Wall Street Journal, said Robert, simply because people disagree with an opinion is not a basis for criticizing the legitimacy of the court. He said the left is angry because it has lost the court as a backup legislature for its policy goals. So liberals are trying to undermine the whole institution. Writing in The New Yorker, Amy Davidson Sorkin found Robert's denialism troubling, citing Justice Elena Kagan rebutting him in a recent speech of her own, where she said, quote, Judges create legitimacy problems for themselves by discarding decades of precedent to impose their own personal preferences. When justices are replaced and the law suddenly changes, said Kagan, it doesn't look like law. And I want to go out in the last couple of minutes we have at our disposal with something just a little lighter. Here's two items related to tech. The first, a piece in the New York Times by Cade Metz, describing a ride in a driverless car. Said Metz, riding in a driverless car reminded me of being a passenger when my teenage daughter was learning to drive, except my daughter could at least respond to me. My experience in a self-driving Chevy Bolt was by turns spooky, impressive, perplexing, and a little stressful. Cruise, a division of General Motors, recently started providing passenger service on certain San Francisco streets during certain late-night hours. And let's just say, said Metz, that technology remains a work in progress. For passengers, this requires patience. I hailed the car for a three-mile round trip that the app said would take 21 minutes, way longer than an Uber with a human driver. He notes, life is slower when you can't go over 30 miles per hour. The car dutifully stopped for pedestrians and navigated smoothly around construction zones marked off with orange cones. But it also had a habit of slowing in the middle of an empty block for no apparent reason. Then, just as we hit some traffic, the car detected a possible accident and pulled over and wouldn't budge again. Apparently, when our photographer perched his iPhone on a tripod outside the window, it spooked the car. So much for our joyride. And finally, when it comes to joyrides, it turns out that the new Apple iPhone 14, which has a provision to alert 911 if it detects that the user's been in a car crash, is having trouble distinguishing car crashes from roller coaster rides. Evidently, out in Ohio, one emergency services director has had at least six coaster triggered false alarms. All right, that about does it for today's program, which was produced by Edward McMillan. Our thanks again to the irrepressible Greg Pallast. With any luck, my voice will be back to normal for next week's program. And if it isn't, I'll just have to outsource this show to some guy in Bangalore. If they can do it with call centers, that shows they can do it for a radio show. What do you think? All right, this has been Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. We'll see you next week.